never starts talking. Una um, I, I am here for <laughs> episode. Um, I don't know how many, but it will, you'll find it on this publisher. Uh, and we are going to talk about the uh, entire history of man. Um, actually, no, the entire evolution of uh, everything from the Big Bang until the writing in the streets of uh, Minnesota, whatever, right now. Um, uh, yes. And why the bird is a very disappointing person as a result yes. of it. Yes. 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 Correct. Um, well, let me let me let me flatly tell you right now, you may be disappointed. Um, All right. So 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 I oh, believe dear. we're here today to discuss our favorite uh, 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 historical figure uh, of all time, Napoleon Napoleon Bonaparte, which is yes. actually not correct because I. Found something out about Napoleon that I guess never clicked before, but really uh, rocks, which is that he's an Italian. Didn't realize that. Uh, uh, so shout yeah, out to you. Sure. No, literally. He said, I am Italian and Tuscan. That's how he identified. Look. Yeah. He okay, identified in quotes as an Italian and a Tuscan and specifically, and this rocks. He said, I am from a race of men who build empires. <laughs> <laughs> So that rocks. So shout out to you, Napoleon, because right. his name is actually <laughs> supposed to be like Napoleon di Poniparte. So, uh, well, there you go. All right, so I found uh, that out. So that was the most so, interesting so thing that I podcast. found out. Uh, that's it. <laughs> good, good evening, everyone. Well, listen, would you, at this point, would you rather be glorifying him because he's French or Italian? It's a hard choice, but <laughs> it's a hard choice. But I think we have to choose the Italians on this one. Um, well, uh, fuck. The problem is, um, I would prefer him being Italian, or yeah. at least I would prefer glorifying he, him because he's Italian. But yeah. um, well, in this particular case, I would prefer to glorify him because he's French, uh, okay. mostly because you're here. Yes, fair enough. <laughs> it's fair enough. It's fair enough. So anyway, to explain. So that was an interesting thing I found out about him. But um, he's an extremely interesting guy. There's a, a, right. a, a debate on YouTube, which is a fantastic debate. I want to get the exact name for it, but I'm pretty sure it was called uh, Was Napoleon Great? And it is a discussion between two historians. It was called Napoleon the Great. Yeah, that's, that's the actual title is uh, uh, Napoleon the Great, a debate with Andrew Roberts and Adam Zamoyski uh, and Jeremy Paxman. It's a really great debate. And it's two men who are discussing uh, whether or not we should refer to Napoleon as a great man, uh, hmm. sort of discussing his personal life, what kind of an individual he was. Uh, one of the things about Napoleon incredibly funny guy. He was cracking jokes all the time. You don't ever realize that about him, but he had a very uh, interesting sense of humor. Very funny guy. Um, that's something that they get into, for example, when they discuss some of his positive and negative qualities. Um, <laughs> that but that, if you, if you want to learn about Napoleon, the guy, um, I recommend you check that debate out. Cause I could just recycle that the points made in that debate, but I'd rather you, I mean, the two of them really hammer out some good debate from it. So right. but anyway, so that's the disappointment part is we're not going to be talking about Napoleon, the man today. There's so much to talk about. I will give you a, a brief timeline of his life, of course, but we will not, mm -hmm. uh, uh, stay too far on him. What I want to talk about is Napoleon, the general, because Napoleon, okay. the general, uh, you know, we wonder why, I mean, there are some generals in history, of course, that come to mind when you think of like the greatest generals ever, you think of people like Napoleon, right? You think of people like, uh, Subutai and, uh, Genghis Khan and, uh, Attila the Hun and Marius. And you think of all these, if you know any generals, you know, you th uh, and all these generals, the reason why they're known is because they've innovated certain tactics, uh, that made their particular armies, able to deal with the conditions that were, they were, they were fighting against better than anyone else could. And so that's why we know these people as great generals. So to me, the right. most fascinating thing about Napoleon is that he is really this little Corsican peasant who becomes, I mean, almost inarguably the greatest general who ever lived, um, at least as far as in the West. And so well, I, 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 what, what, I what mean, attracted I've... me was to wonder why that is. So today 
I would like to explain to you why that is. Now, Bullshito, what were you saying? Well, I mean, basically, you answered my questions already because uh, that's that's quite a claim uh, to say that he is the greatest general. Um, I, yeah, I would say in, in, in Western history, Western, I, yeah, uh, history. I would say in Western history, yeah. he, he definitely is. And I think the reason for that is because, um, well, I mean, the way I view greatest is, you know, you can't be the greatest if you were from 3,000 years ago. Sorry, our armies beat you. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, there's no, um, you know, if you were to think about the, a modern United States military, even with swords, it doesn't matter, fighting a Roman military, we would crush them. In, in seconds because all military tactics develop based off of previous military tactics. So it's just, right. you, and you'll see, and I will explain the huge transition that occurs. Actually, let me get into it. Let me give you some, and let me run through the general spark notes timeline of Napoleon's life. It's, it's, it's not oh, yes. terribly long. Uh, and it is, uh, quick enough and, and, and it'll get you, give you some, understanding of him again if you want to know about any things like why he was sent to the islands uh any of that you got to go and check out that debate it's very fascinating i want to talk about how much of a genius he was um okay so august 15th 1769 napoleon bonaparte is born in ahasio corsica i'm not i don't know why i pronounce that in a spanish way but whatever may 17th 1799, so that's 10 years later, listen to that, at the age of 10, <laughs> Napoleon begins to study at the Royal Military Academy, uh, the École Militaire, and then five years after that, he graduates. Uh, he graduates to the, to the rank, yes, yeah, so at the age Wait. of 15, he graduates to the rank of second lieutenant in the artillery division. Wait, what the fuck? Yeah, so he, this he's guy a is... smart boy. <laughs> What the fuck? He's a smart but boy. Ten years old. He's already allowed into in, in the yeah in, a, in, the in, in the, into military school, and then five yeah, years yeah. later he's, he's a, put he's in a charge. Second as lieutenant. Look at that, and Jesus fucking yeah, Christ. second lieutenant. This, so uh, this guy, he didn't have like a mom and dad in the army, right? He was just. A I'll give you. Fucking, I, see, I was gonna here. I'll go and tell you. Uh, this is actually how I found uh, it. He was yes. Italian because I wanted to look into his history. Both of his parents are Italian. Um, Immigrants to Corsica. Why can I not spell his name? All right, there we go. So uh, his early life, his ancestors, Napoleon's ancestors descended from minor Italian nobility of Tuscan origin who had come to Corsica from Liguria in the 16th century. Napoleon boasted about his Italian heritage, saying, I am the race that founds empires and referring to himself as more Italian or Tuscan than Corsican. His parents, Carlo Maria di Boniparta and Maria Letizia Romalino, uh, maintained an ancestral home called Casa Boniparta on the island of Asahio. Uh, so he uh, was a baptized Catholic. Uh, he comes from nobility. Uh, he was uh, born in the Republic of Genoa, which was a former commune of Italy, and then was transferred to Corsica. Uh, yeah, so there's your history. So he was a minor Italian noble, or rather uh, mm -hmm. ancestors of a minor Italian noble. So they were probably upper middle class. Yeah, pretty much. They so were probably, probably upper middle class. So this takes us to the episode we already did here. Now it's July fourteenth, seventeen ninety eight, seventeen eighty nine. That's the day that uh, the Bastille is stormed. Uh, so oh, right. Uh, so now, w just to place you at the beginning of this history. So two years after yeah, that, yeah. Napoleon, uh, or rather, sorry, uh, uh, one year after that, uh, Napoleon is accused of being too pro French. And so he and his family have to flee their household in Corsica. So ah, they, they, okay. they, because okay. there's a lot of national rebellion going on at this time, and the Corsicans yeah. themselves seek, a, you know, to have their own kingdom, or a, not kingdom, yeah, but sure. actually republic. Uh, and so they have to leave, and so they go to France. And so for his courage, uh, he remember he's a French soldier. He fights for the French. So yes. Uh, for his courage uh, at an internal French battle in Toulon, Napoleon receives a new rank of brigadier general, and that is what's going to basically place him uh, in the upper echelons of the military. Uh, mm -hmm. And this, that's what sort of pushes him into politics. Uh, between August 9th and August 20th of 1794, that's two years after the storming of the Bastille, Napoleon is imprisoned under suspicion of being a Jacobin and supporting uh, Robespierre. Remember, this is still at the time when... Um, the, uh, oh man, now I'm forgetting the name of them. Not the Girondin. Oh yes, the Girondin are still in power. 
remember. So the Jacobin uh, yes. are, are largely viewed as uh, radicals at this time still. Mm-hmm. So uh, he eventually is released from prison after the suspicions are cleared. And a year after that, he is promoted to general of the army of the West, which is the highest position in the Republic at the time. Uh, the government assigns Napoleon to the task of suppressing civil strife and rebellion against the empire. This was partly to test his um, loyalty to the empire. Um, okay. On, August fi- on, on October 15th, 1785, at the home of Paul Francois Barry, uh, a directory member, Napoleon meets uh, his wife, uh, Josephine. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, the same man, Barras, later, uh, actually the, the next day, helps him win promotion to commander of the Army of the Interior. This is the French army, the the actual civil mm-hmm. army in yeah. France, as opposed to the army to go out and fight. Um, he marries Josephine uh, uh, 11 years later. Man, he didn't pull that trigger for a while. <laughs> uh, he enters his Italian campaign uh, in the same year, actually two days after he gets married, which is pretty dope. Uh, he returns to Paris a hero, a year later after winning uh, in Austerlitz and kicking out the Austrian army from the uh, war entirely. Uh, he begins his Egyptian campaign a year after this in 1798. Uh, in several months after that, on July 2nd, Alexandria falls. Uh, 20 days after that, Cairo falls. Uh, uh, and he and in the same year, he manages to take full control of Egypt uh, he frees the Jewry in Egypt. Uh, <laughs> he also installs uh, Republican administrators in Egypt, which is so, the first time since the Ottomans. I mean, sorry, it is it is until the Ottomans then stretch their hegemony over Egypt that it remains this sort of semi-Republican uh, society. Uh, right. So, so me, wait a second. He yes. just basically conquers all of Egypt in a year. Yes. And then establishes. Yes. He moves through. Uh, basically through remember, a, a so yes, Europe. when he, exactly. So when he does, he basically moves through Europe and then right. he moves down through um, Egypt. Yeah. That's basically what he does. So, uh, there's, there's, I mean, he, he goes through the Holy land. He's got a whole, yeah. The, the yeah, actual I, military conquests are some incredible reading. I'm, I'm sure we'll get into it, but um, is this because Napoleon was just a genius or is this because um, the military organization and, style? And, right. But uh, is yeah. this also it, because uh, all of the other European nations and apparently also other nations of the world are particularly weak at this point or not yet? Not yet. I, I misspoke okay. and said the Battle of Austerlitz occurred. It doesn't occur yet. So actually, uh-huh. by the time that by the time that it was a different battle, it was uh, Valmy, not um, yeah, Valmy. You remember the Battle of Valmy where they kicked the Prussians out? Uh, the the oh, light the, right. the, the windmill in the middle of the uh, yeah, field yeah, yeah. where they do a cannonade and they kick out the Prussians. That that occurs. So the Prussians exit the war and they'll re-enter ten years later. But they they're out. So basically, it's Napoleon versus the Austrians. And the Russians. Uh, he also goes down uh, uh, through the Holy Land and into uh, Egypt. That's that's two of his journeys. Uh, and oh, this is all done because of the, I guess, I don't know what you would refer to it, but like sort of the revolutionary fervor that he was bringing with him. Because Napoleon, the other thing you have to understand about him is, you know, not everybody is like, not, not every... Um, person in the upper echelon just does things for material purposes. You know what I mean? Like that not everybody just does things to gain. Uh, and Napoleon was very much a guy who believed the things that he said, uh, and was obsessed with this bringing back the Roman empire through liberation movement thing using his army. And, and so this, it, it is hard to think about, well, why would you, go and conquer, you know, all of this land for this reason. Well, I mean, first of all, this is not the first time a conqueror has conquered simply to conquer, but <laughs> you know, uh, it is the first yeah, really, yeah. T- the b- most notable time in modern history where it occurs for no reason other than ideological reasons. I mean, you can think of the Nazis advancing into Russia, but that wasn't entirely for ideological reasons. They had Lebensraum, you know, they actually realized, wait, we actually need to be able to grow food. Um, but Napoleon is not concerned with 
growing food or taking supplies or anything like that. He is concerned with rolling his armies through and like the Roman empire did uh, liberating these peoples from their previous rulers, giving them different forms of representation, taxing them and having (laughs) these large multicultural armies, which again, I will explain why the armies are so revolutionary and it all plays into the, the, these kind of armies need to be conquering territory in order to be formed in the first place. So I'll be explaining that a little bit too. Um, but uh, after uh, he returns from, oh, where am I? Ah, there we go. Okay, so uh, one year after uh, he he destroys the, uh, one year after he uh, has his fleet destroyed by the British who are uh, attacking him in Egypt because they don't want him rolling through Egypt because Egypt is a British interest. Um, mm-hmm. the, he, uh, the French Navy loses and this causes a great amount of turmoil in Paris. And around a year later, he's forced to return to Paris and the coup d'etat occurs, you know, when they assassinate or not assassinate, yeah. but when they try and execute, uh, Louis, uh, so that occurs right. and he becomes first consul, uh, as remember first consul being a Roman Republican term. Uh, exactly. for the yeah. for the voting leader of the of the republic. So, he sets up his household in the Tuileries. Remember the Tuileries was the place where uh Louis and his family were interred after the Women's March. Oh, right. And yeah. it also served as the uh imperial home for the Bourbon family. Uh I believe it might even extend back the area as far as Charlemagne, uh where his family made uh their stay in Paris because it's right at the center of Paris. Um, uh, so, uh, that's, this is, uh, 1801. Uh, he, oh, sorry, I'm getting lost with my notes. There's so much here, dude. <laughs> uh, he, um, signs a treaty with the Austrians at Lundville, uh, which gives him a little bit of breathing space. And a year later, he signs the concordat between France and Rome, which ends the schism between the French government and the Catholic church. Uh, another very important move because, of course, uh, Napoleon is a Catholic and not just a Catholic, but a, you know, a Romophile Catholic. So this is very important for him to be able to reunite the church and the state. Um, yeah. So December 24th, 1801, he escapes an assassination attempt. So this is already, there's already, they're already after him. Uh, the assassination attempt was believed to have been uh, perpetrated by uh, either Royals or Girondin. They don't know. It's never been recorded. Being a politician uh, in France was... A really dangerous job, apparently. It must have been. <laughs> it must have been a really, why? really dangerous job. Uh, yeah. It, why is it not still like this? I mean, I don't know. Like, well, well, maybe it'll, <laughs> maybe it'll start I mean, being that way. It should be. <laughs> as of late, as of late. So, um, uh, in eighteen oh four, Napoleon crowns himself emperor in Notre Dame. Uh, in 1805, he crowns himself king of Italy. Uh, the Battle of Trafalgar occurs in the same year on October 21st. And the Battle of Trafalgar, of course, is a significant uh, naval defeat uh, yes. by the, the British. The British beat the French Navy, which, again, the Battle of Trafalgar is perhaps one of the reasons why Napoleon didn't start colonizing, is that the French Navy ah, okay. just kept getting wrecked and wrecked and wrecked over and over and over again. So it's potentially one of the reasons why you don't hear much about the actions of the French Navy now or, or slightly after this. That's at least what I figure. Mm-hmm. Uh, December 2nd, 1805, uh, he, uh, Napoleon has his great victory at the Battle of Austerlitz against Austria and Prussia uh, and Russia. Sorry. Now, remember, Austerlitz is an incredibly significant moment because this is it destroys the entire Austrian army. And it and it almost effectively destroys the entire or or one entire Russian army. So this oh, is shit. a huge battle. Yeah, and so it completely yeah. kicks the it forces the Austrians to surrender. The Russians do not surrender, but um, they they basically go into hiding for several years. Uh, in eighteen oh six, Napoleon names his brother Joseph Bonaparte as king of Naples and appoints other family members to various posts. In 1807, he defeats the Russians at the Battle of Friedland. And in the same year, a month later, Tsar Alexander I is forced to make peace with Napoleon at the Treaty of Tilsit. So at this point, Napoleon has effectively 
uh, eliminated all threats in Europe except for the Prussians who return in 1816 for a brief war that he, you know, swipes through. Uh, <laughs> he divorces his wife, Josephine, in 1809. He marries Marie-Louis, the, Archduch- the Archduchess of Austria. That's an interesting one. Oh, sorry. Give me one second, Bullshito. Oh, you sure? Sorry, I didn't want my really loud air conditioner to interrupt this. Uh, it's like it's like very quickly going from 30 degrees last week in New York to 90 degrees this week. <laughs> oh shit. <laughs> uh, oh yeah, you don't know what that means. Sorry. It's it it went from almost freezing to 30 Celsius. <laughs> oh Jesus. <laughs> something like that. There you go. Oh fuck. <laughs> uh, so on November 30th, 1807, he begins the French occupation of Portugal. Uh, in 1808, uh, or May 2nd, 1808, he uh, has an unsu- he leads an unsuccessful, oh, sorry, there is an unsuccessful Spanish revolt against the French army. Ah, uh, right. Uh, in 1812, he returns to Paris. Uh, in 1813, on March 17th, Prussia declares war on France. Uh, this is pretty much kind of... Uh, the end of this, and it forces Napoleon to abdicate the throne. Uh, Paris eventually falls. I want to say something that's quite interesting is um, there's pictures of uh, when this war is declared in 1813, there's pictures of Prussian soldiers um, sharpening their blades on the steps of the French embassy in Prussia. And um, so they sent that picture, they sent that picture around to all the French as sort of the, the declaration of war, the unofficial declaration of war. Uh, because the war was obviously already going on. Um, and so anyway, uh, in 1814, an anti-French coalition army enters France. The coalition consists of Spanish troops, Portuguese troops led by the Prussians. Uh, Paris falls on March 30th of 1814. On April 2nd of 1814, the Senate proclaims the end of the empire and Napoleon's wife and son flee Paris. Uh, two days after that, Napoleon abdicates his throne and Louis the 17th, a Bourbon is restored to the French throne. Oh shit. Uh, on, in 1814, Napoleon is exiled to the Isle of Elba, uh, with his wife Mm -hmm. and son. Uh, he escapes Elba and returns to South France, rallies the French army, forces Louis to flee, uh, takes control again and begins the hundred days campaign where he, you know, uh, does a pretty good job, but is eventually beaten at the Battle of Wa- the Battle of Waterloo by the British and the Prussians, led by uh, the Duke of Wellington and uh, Blucher. And uh, he abdicates for a second time, is finally exiled to St. Helena, where uh, uh, six years later, he dies. And there's the end of Napoleon. All right. So that's Napoleon's story. So I think you can see why... I decided to focus less on Napoleon the guy and more on Napoleon the general. Because yes. Napoleon's, <laughs> if you look up Napoleon history or Napoleon timeline, it's all fighting. <laughs> Nobody talks about <laughs> anything else this guy did other than the, the campaigns that he uh, waged. So well, it seems like he didn't actually do much else. So. Yeah, it's true. No. I mean, which is actually, it's that's not true. I mean to say that's not true at all. He's a really prolific writer. Uh, oh, wow. I believe he was an educator for a time. He did lecturing. Like the guy was a very, like he did a lot of stuff, but I guess it's because of just, I mean, it's some incredible, I mean, the guy does short of like something that hasn't been seen for hundreds of years as far as conquest goes. And this isn't right. even, and I want to say yeah. it sounds like I'm glorifying it. Honestly, I kind of am because <laughs> because this is very specifically Napoleon, who is an emperor himself, of course, uh, is is the effective end of monarchy in Europe. And to me, that's far more significant than the fact that he himself declared himself emperor. I mean, look, he six years later, he gets kicked out for good. It's like not that big of a deal, but he managed to be the basically the guillotine of every single monarch in Europe. They're, the monarchies just have no power after Napoleon. So, so let me. Yeah, yeah So l- yeah. let me. Oh. oh God, my notes. No, I'm good. My notes are insane. The note, <laughs> and I think it's because I chose too big of a font <laughs> for this one. Uh, <laughs> so let me let's let's get into it. So w- let let's go back now. 
Because yes. we talked about him in military school, right? So what what was military school for him? Military school, obviously, is where he learns all of his tactics and training. Now, Napoleon is is not, I would not call him an inventor or an innovator. You know what I mean? Like, right. he wasn't like the guy who invented the sky hook or the guy who hit the first home run. You know what I mean? He was more like no. the guy who hit the most. Or the, <laughs> You know what I mean? He was an expert. At, at, at what he was doing. So what was he learning yeah. from? At, what were the tactics that they were teaching him? Well, let's go all the way back to the beginning of civil military history. And because this is important, uh, you start with more or less the Marian reforms in ancient Rome. This takes the armies of the Mediterranean, which had previously fought in phalanxes, which a phalanx is basically, Bullshito, you and me, and maybe a hundred of our <laughs> friends, we stand in a line of ten, you know, by by ten. It's a square. Mm-hmm. Yeah, It's a square, and the reason why it's a square is because it can't get pushed backwards. So the way that these, okay. these armies fight is they fight by clashing in a square. Sometimes the edges spill over, but the point is push the weight towards the front in the middle, right? So mm-hmm. the yeah. Marian reforms occur uh, uh, in not, not necessarily in the wake of, but in recalling Alexander the Great's formations, the hammer and anvil, very important for integrating cavalry into it. Of course, you yep. set up a line, the line meets you, cavalry go behind the enemy line and smash into them from the back. Classic Check. tactic. Yeah. It's why Alexander was one of the greatest conquerors in the world. So the Romans, in knowing this, knowing they're going to war with the Macedonians, or, or rather slightly after, I may be forgetting the exact timing of it, but, but they innovate a new system, which moves away from the traditional phalanx, the single unit of troops that moves forward in its own. It doesn't have tactics, it just fights. Now they innovate the triple ACs, and it's not just the triple ACs, but they innovate the ACs system. Uh, this is a system where you take those phalanx, and first of all, you make them wider, which means you make them more shallow, obviously. Mm-hmm. So you make yeah. them wider and more shallow. This, of course, what this does is it expands your your overall military line so that it makes it more difficult to travel in large formations. So this is more like a setup thing. This is not how you travel on the road. Uh, so yeah, basically yeah. what you do is you set up and you stack, think maybe three tiers of troops, right? So you have in the mm-hmm. very front, the youngest, most eager fighters with the least experience. And let's say you maybe have three lines of them. Then maybe a yeah. hundred feet back, you have two lines of the more experienced principes, you know, the slightly older yep. men, maybe in their thirties who are more, a little more experienced. And then behind them, you have the triarii. The Triarii are the expert fighters. A lot of these guys are in their late 30s and 40s. Uh, they've been fighting forever. And I mean, these are the guys who, if it if the fighting comes down to them, they're going to be the ones to end up winning the fight or losing the fight because they are the yes. most powerful in the line, most experienced. So this is a huge yes, innovation, exactly. obviously, because what it does is it changes combat from basically two amalgamations punching one another in the face to an actual technical system where there are certain things that you can pinpoint areas that you can hit that are weakened. And so this is where the conception Mm -hmm. of sort of military tactics comes from, at least in Western technology. So let's go slightly forward. Wait, wait, one, uh, one quick interjection here. Yes. Um, There is, uh, if you want more information about this particular subject. uh, So the, the transition from phalanx to the triple AC system, uh, Historia Civilis on YouTube has a fantastic video about it. Oh, yeah, um, I like that channel. He does good work. So, yeah. if you want to know more about that, uh, like just type in something like Historia Civilis and, and Phalanx or something, and you'll get there. Yeah, yeah, it's good. It's a, incredible. It's funny that you don't really think about it. Like, why why were the Romans so good at fighting? I'm telling you, anytime you think, why was that group so good at fighting, look at their tactics. I guarantee you they're different from everyone else. Um, so yes, so this is a huge innovation, but I mean to bring it up, not because it's really so relevant to Napoleon, although way uh, parts of it are, but, but the whole tradition of military tactics comes from this. Now let's move forward to the medieval age because we're just going to stay in Europe, obviously, because Napoleon is not, 
you know, he's not pulling from Chinese tactic or he's not pulling from Indian no, war tactic. He's pulling very specifically from Roman military styles. Now, he's not the first well, person I mean, to innovate this. It's a little this, bit hard to uh, yes, right. go and find yourself an elephant uh, in Europe. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's that that is true. <laughs> Although maybe in his maybe in Algeria they would have been able to get a couple of those. That might have been good. Yeah, yeah fair enough. <laughs> so so let's so now let's move into the medieval age. Yes. So in the medieval age, this system more or less remains the same. Uh, as in, you still have these divisions, these cohorts of troops who are acting under the single command of a general and his sub-generals, you know, and they're all, you know, this giant line of men are all performing one tactic, right? This is, yeah. this is, um, this just occurs basically throughout the Middle Ages with some small advancements, but you do not see much in the way of advancement of military tactic during the Middle Ages. I'm not sure why no. that is, but I'm sure there's a lot of theories. Um it takes up until the 30 years war mm-hmm. for things to change. Uh, so just give me a quick, as a, the 30 years war is between who and who in roughly when? So the 30 years war is probably in, in European history. I would go so far as to say might, it might be the most important war for you to know as far as central European history goes, if you're a German, I mean, honestly, if you're a Frenchman too, this, this should be very important. I'll tell you why. So the 30 years war was, it was a war primarily fought in central Europe and it begins in the early 1600s and ends in around 1650. Mm-hmm. It is, it, it, it is basically the largest war of the time uh, that had ever been seen. And it results in the death of over 8 million people, which is 20% oh, of the German population at the time. So the war yeah. initially begins uh, between Protestant and Catholic states in the Holy Roman Empire, uh, but it eventually spills out of control into basically continuations of royal rivalries. Um, and it necessitates, well, it doesn't necessitate, but it sets a standard for royals going sort of against the the wishes of the Roman emperor or of the pope of this constant going to war with one another. It kind of sets a standard that everybody in Europe is for themselves. Right. Right. Yes. So, what does this yes. necessitate um, in the eyes of the German people? Wait. It, uh, if you yes. Don't mind me doing another quick uh, interjection here. Yes. Um, so, uh, remember the very first episode in our whole history. Um, Dutch. Uh, the Dutch uh, series. The Dutch yes. revolt. Yes. Do you remember when it ends? No, fourteen. No, it leads to the Dutch Golden Age. Sixteen forty-eight. Right? Yes, yes. The, so right. So nope. the peace of the that's right. The peace of Westphalia, which is the most important thing I was about to talk about. That is, is that not what yes. leads to the Golden, uh, the Dutch Golden Age? Uh, no, that's a little bit earlier already. Oh, okay. So uh, that's the twelve-year uh, ceasefire essentially that kind of kicks off the Golden, Dutch Golden Age. Then oh, okay. there's some more fighting between 169, wait, no, between 1621 and 1648. Oh, so yeah, uh, so that's going then, on during this time. Golden Age. Yes. There you go. So that's going um, on during this time. And uh, this is something you will maybe probably also talk about. I'm not sure. But uh, this also coincides with the military revolution being kicked off by uh, I believe King Gustav in Gustavus Sweden. Adolphus. Yes, yes, yes. Gustavus, Gustavus Adolphus. Adolphus. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Actually, that and is the also, character who I was about to talk about very specifically. Ah, oh, perfect. And yeah. also, uh, because there's some national pride wrapped up in this, uh, in no small part due to William of Orange or William the Silent. Uh, yes, of yes. The Netherlands. Yes, yes, so, very much so. Yes. Uh, that's all I had to say. Uh, please <laughs> go on, bird. Okay. So, <laughs> what is the the what is the significance of the? Oh God, now I'm losing. Of the Thirty Years' War, what is the significance of the Thirty Years' War? Well, the Thirty Years' War is, in my opinion, probably the first world war that was fought in modern European history. Um, um and it 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 is a different kind of war than any war that had ever been fought before. And I will explain to you why that is. The Prussians play a huge role in this. The Prussians are interesting because the Prussians play a huge role in a lot of our institutions today. Um, obviously, schooling is a huge Prussian, uh, like a Prussian model. Our military today still reflects Prussian models. And so 
the Prussians play a huge role here in innovating military tactics. Now, what 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 does that mean? Well, before this, like I was saying, you have a certain style of going to war. But you also, of course, we can't just talk about the way that armies would fight. We should talk about what armies are. Well, up until this point, especially in France, about 90% of, of, of a nation's military is going to be aristocrats. So aristocrats who are always expected to be the ones... See, this is another thing. Is a lot of people have this impression that peasants were made to fight in the wars, and that simply mm-hmm. isn't the case during the Enlightenment era. The, or uh-huh. during the Roman era, really, the Roman Republican era. Really, the nobility were the ones who were always fighting. But, of course, what's a big problem with that? Well, if you know anything about the nobility, they're a bunch of picky losers. So they take with them a <laughs> tremendous amount of stuff. For example, if you're a French nobleman in Central Europe fighting, you know, fighting in in, in Central Europe, fighting against the Germans, you would have a baggage train with you, which means you would have your horse, you would have an assistant who has a mule, probably, you would have a Batman who would take care of your weaponry and your armor, and he would have a horse, you would have a cook, and he would have a mule. You'd probably have a food pack mule, and you would probably have two mules to carry things like pots, pans, your musical instruments, if you wanted to bring one of those, several tents for all the people in your baggage train. Yeah. And so you have got, as you can imagine, the supply lines are horrendous when going to war. Oh, yeah. by, I mean, they are completely bloated by this time. And so the Holy Roman Emperor, Ferdinand II, who is a staunch Catholic, uh, and uh, Gustavus Adolphus, who is the king of Sweden, who is a staunch Protestant, the two of these men, who are both inarguably military geniuses, realize at the very same time that there's a huge problem here. What is the problem? Well, we're fighting a war, which, you know, we don't know this at the time, but we can clearly see is leading to the death of, you know, a tremendous amount of our people, right? Yes. We're also notice that in, that in order to keep waging these wars, you know, people are not really so enthusiastic about this. But all, you know who's less enthusiastic about waging these wars? The aristocrats, <laughs> as you can imagine, because of a tremendous amount of, of, of danger in waging these basically rivalry wars between the French and the Habsburgs. You know what I mean? So it's it's yeah. it's it, it, it's it's the war becomes an ex- extremely callous occasion, and both Frederick, uh, sorry, both Ferdinand II and Gustavus Adolphus realize this, and this kind of and I believe it's Gustavus Adolphus who particularly uh, innovates this, but a new system arises, and this is an incredibly significant system because it's not a military system, it's the modern state. Gustavus Adolphus, in my opinion, is responsible for the birth of what you know certainly people in libertarian circles but generally what is known as the state is created by Gustavus Adolphus and I'll explain why because the state is ultimately what it the state has to secure assets of course how does it do that well it does that through right. military force primarily yeah. uh, a state is uh, a a a basically a an engine to fuel a military and the military is basically the immune system that fuels the state so this is an innovation where Gustavus Adolphus realizes, well, maybe we can have bigger armies if we go out and we conquer and we stop having, because, because you know, he's the king of Sweden. Sweden is obviously not a largely populated nation. Uh, no. Prussia is obviously no, no, no. not a largely populated nation. So they realize Probably if not. we're going to be waging these w- religious, which suddenly become much less religious wars against these countries, Dude. we can't just be throwing our, our aristocrats at the situation. So what we need are peasants to finally start fighting again. This happens in basically in the Roman Empire. Eventually, they, they need armies of such size that they have to get the peasants in. Uh, so is that where the legions start as well? Just a- where the, where the, huh? The legions, yeah, uh, no, legions are a Roman Republican thing. Um, oh, okay. So they're still aristocratic back then. Um, but anyway, okay. so he so he innovates a system where he basically creates a modern state. What does that mean? Well, he realizes that well, it might be easier for us to 
go out and 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 take prisoners of war take deserters from the various parts of the holy roman empire who are leaving because of the havoc that's being wrecked by the french and by by the bavarians by any group number of groups are all fleeing to a place like prussia or over to sweden which are involved in the war, but obviously not facing as much direct threat. So a lot of people flee. So they realize, well, we can take these multicultural groups and we can have them fight in our armies for us. Well, the problem with that is that multicultural groups, they don't really want to fight for a nation that isn't theirs, right? So this institutes the Prussian system, right? Which is basically you set up a line of shooters and then you set up a line of shooters behind them. And those shooters behind them are the commissioned officers of the Prussian army, for example, or not the Prussian army, but in this case, the the Swedish and then later the Prussian army. Those soldiers' jobs are to shoot those soldiers in the front line and the back if they stop firing or stop moving forward. And that's the Prussian system, how it originates, is they realize, well, we could basically just, you know, have one guy with one gun standing behind five or six guys from different nations who don't have huge amounts of loyalty to us, <laughs> but yeah. we could get them to shoot at our enemy <laughs> and we could probably get 10 guys, you know, and we only need one commissioned officer pointing a gun at them. You know what I mean? Because only yeah, one of them has much. to get shot before they, you know, and so you go, well, I'd rather kill the guys who are shooting at me now than the guy who, if I turn around and run is going to shoot at me. So this is, and, and it's, Pretty this much. is a real psychologically powerful system that they innovate. Now, yeah. of course, I, I keep talking about the Prussians and mixing them into this, but really it's more like the Germans do this under Gustavus Adolphus, the King of Sweden. The Prussians specifically bring a different flavor to it. Now, this is about 100 or so years later. They realize, well, this still isn't effective enough. Why? Because you can't have troops like this, you know, troops who are, are only fighting because they're afraid to be killed. You can't have troops like this resting. Why? Well, where do you rest an army? You almost never rest an army in the field. You rest your armies in the forest. But if you rest your armies in the Uh, forest, these guys are going to desert because they don't really want to be there. And the forest is the easiest place for one of these deserting soldiers to go, okay, I'm done. I'm leaving. I don't want to be a part of the the Prussian military anymore. and, And they're facing real problems with deserters. So they decide, well, what we can do instead, and the Prussians, the Prussians are very good at this because they, they know, Seemingly that the best way to get people to act a certain way is to get them to think a certain way, not to see certain things. They go, we don't need our soldiers to be afraid of our officers. What we need is our soldiers to feel like they're fighting for something. And the Prussians, they take this Gustavus Adolphus model and they basically nationalize it. What they do is they say, okay, let's take the Prussian model or let's take Gustavus Adolphus's model, which is to have these lines of troops with the lines of troops behind them. You know, obviously you can see how this eventually just turns into cannonades and firing lines as well, of course. But yeah, of course. So, so let's, instead of having them be afraid of the guys behind them, let's make the guys behind them and the guys in front of them fight for the same cause. And that would be the nation. So basically Prussia and the Prussian military innovate this system of nationalism. Nationalism becomes the new fuel for militaries. It, it, it goes away from using these massive amounts of multicultural groups who don't really mm-hmm. particularly want to be fighting because you can't just use aristocrats. Otherwise, they're all going to die. So they, 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 they change that again, and they create the idea of Prussia, the, the, the nation to fight for. Now, of course, right. this obviously is very important for Napoleon Bonaparte. Napoleon Bonaparte takes this system one step further. He's not the first person to do this. In fact, this system arises from the Revolutionary Army in France. But he's the one who takes it outside of France. What the system that he takes up is, think back to the Triple Aces in the beginning. Mm -hmm. If you think about the Triple Aces, you have your lines, but in those lines are separate cohorts of men. Around those cohorts of men, you have your cavalry. Maybe behind them, you would have your, your, well, in the Roman days you would have maybe a catapult but in french times perhaps you'd have your cannons up at the front and then pull them back behind the troops whatever the case may be napoleon if you know one thing about france you know france is a mountainous place especially when you're trying to leave france and go and conquer (laughs) other places you hit a lot of (laughs) mountains along the way (laughs) 
So this necessitates, yeah. and again, this goes all the way back to Gustavus Adolphus, who's a military genius, but it's really perfected by Napoleon, who uses it to conquer all of Europe in a way Gustavus Adolphus never did. The system goes, take your triple ACs and think about what it is. It's, 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 a, it's a multitude of constituent parts, which are infantry, artillery, and cavalry, right? Yeah. Well, if the infantry, the artillery, and the cavalry exist as constituent parts of an army, then what, how do we move that, that multitude of people over the Alps, over these mountains we need to get across in the age of gunfire? When someone can just as simply line up on a mountainside while you're trying to travel in these disorganized formations and just rain hell down on you. So what happens is, he says, what we need is mini armies. We need tiny little armies. Instead of one big wall, we need little armies that can travel all around the mountains and they all have their own command. They all have their own tactics and they all perform their own autonomous tasks. Now, if you think about warfare today... I mean, we're just, I mean, if you, especially American war, the way Americans, the American military wages warfare in, you know, in the Middle East in particular, this is exactly what yeah. it is. It's almost yeah, micro groups exactly. of squads who are running these, like it's, it's gotten even smaller, even yeah, smaller it, than that. Yeah. It's all so, highly autonomous. So Napoleon basically innovates that system of miniature armies to be able to move them across, you know, across the mountains now, but there's other components to this too. One of the big things that occurs in the French Revolution is this sense of the nation, the sense of egalitarianism. In the time period when Napoleon, not Napoleon, in the time period when Louis is still on the throne, right before the coup d'etat, the French military is 90% aristocrat. By the time the coup d'etat happens, the military is 3% aristocrat. Wow. Holy 97% shit. um peasants. And that's not because the aristocrats were killed. Most of them uh, abdicated. Uh, yeah. And they continued to fight in the military, but most of them abdicated. Because at this point, you know, there were a lot of nobility who were willing to abdicate their seats because they knew there just was no future for that you know and they just decided well i got lots of money i'll just put it into other things like capital and sorry let me not go there (laughs) it's literally the birthplace of the bourgeoisie (laughs) i I mean this is literally one of the births of the bourgeoisie is they transfer from nobility in but they still have all their assets and but they but they kind of sink back into the background like everybody else but this is good for the military because now you have no reason to desert because your officers are the same as you they're just citizens now. They're all just citizens. Yeah. So this this is why Napoleon is able to wage such successful wars. Because not only are the French fighting, but eventually at some point, I think we got to this on the previous episode, is they sort of view what's going on, the soldiers themselves, as a liberation movement. Almost like, yeah. the, think about in the Catholic Church, the way the Crusades occurred. Autonomous armies joined the crusade you know what i mean uh, 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 yeah. uh the the english uh the english royalty you know in the in 1000 ad 1100 ad richard the lionheart goes over to the holy land he does his own campaign uh uh the french kings go over but they're all fighting their own little campaigns but they're kind of fighting for more or less roughly the same reason well that's what happens with Napoleon. He kicks up this, we're all kind of fighting for more or less the same reason fervor, which is we got to kick these monarchs out. And I mean, exactly. you can you can see the 30 years war is a huge inspiration for, you know, about 150 years later, the finally the complete collapse of monarchy in Europe more. I mean, it really does not maintain at great strength much long after this. Obviously, many of the monarchs still exist. In fact, I believe Sweden is still known as the kingdom of Sweden today, but these monarchs have zero power uh, at yeah. all. So yeah. that's basically, so basically this, this, these, the, so Napoleon moves through these nations and half the time the peasants see Napoleon as the good guy, as the liberator. So they're all joining mm-hmm. him. Napoleon yeah. is unequivocally the guy who frees the Jews in all of Europe. He, he goes you know? through Europe and he, he, liberates all the Jews. He creates republics, which, which give the Jews rights 
that they did not have before. And so like this, you know, he's genuinely and in as genuine a sense as Napoleon could have been. And again, you need to really read the guy's thoughts and language because he was far more genuine than I think, you know, we, we picture historical figures being. Mm-hmm. He's very genuine and honest about what his goals were. And so he really does to the people at the time prove to be a huge benefit to them. And so he's got massive uh, uh, popular favor. Um, he's got incredible military tactics that are, you know, just beginning to be innovated outside of Prussia and France. You know, the Austrians and the Russians did not have these tactics at all. I mean, (laughs) Russia, Russia is basically in the middle ages up until like, you know, I hate to say it, but like 1850, they're basically stuck in the middle ages. So they, you know, they, they, Napoleon using these military tactics basically wipes these groups out. I mean, their militaries have no ability to stop them. And Napoleon sort of becomes the innovator of popular nationalism throughout Europe. And and you can argue that's an incredibly harmful thing. And it is. But at the same time, without Napoleon, it's very possible that the monarchs would have been able to keep control for far longer. And, and that, in fact, would be quite interesting to think about uh, when Marx would have come along, how he would have viewed the situation. Because, of course, Marx has a massive effect on European history. I think Americans oh, yeah. don't realize how huge, but European history, Marx plays a major role in it. And, and Marx contending against monarchs would have been quite a bit different than Marx contending against republics, I think. So anyway, that's, um, that's yeah, your sure. Napoleon, <laughs> why Napoleon is... Uh, such an interesting guy, such an incredible general. And, uh, oh, look at that. We got it done in less than three hours, Bullshito. Wow. It's, uh, hey. it's actually possible. Um, <laughs> it seems to be. <laughs> so I Any think, questions? Uh, <laughs> well, yes, uh, I am starting to notice a trend here. Um, well, maybe it's less of a question, but more of an observation. Yes. Basically, um, everything is the fault of the Germans. It's always everything in European history boils down to it being somehow the fault of the Germans. Well, yeah. Nationalism, yeah. Uh, the modern military, yes. uh, you name it. That's, um, I, I was talking off, off of, air with, with our friend Paz the other day, and yeah. I mentioned that, that isn't it interesting that so many ideological institutions that we have today basically arise out of German thought post-Roman Republic or post-Roman Empire fall. I mean, almost everything comes from the yeah. Germans. It's very strange, but yeah. almost almost all of our institutions <laughs> and ideas come from the Germans, and I'm not sure why that is, but yeah, it is true. Neither, and but again, the Treaty of Westphalia is the birth of the modern state. So, like, they literally created our what we call the state to yes. this day. Yes. Um, but I think there's some other interesting things going on with this. So not only is everything uh, the fault of the Germans, um, but somehow it's also always improved upon by the French. Yes. Uh, so again, nationalism, yes. uh, the modern army, uh, yep. the lack of a monarchy. But then um, somehow it is always the Dutch being <laughs> way ahead of all this. <laughs> <laughs> sitting in the background being like i don't really don't want to go to war today <laughs> yeah it's like, interesting that we, we did this already like what the fuck are yeah, you guys going on it's about true. <laughs> it's true it's true yeah it is it is an interesting yeah i didn't you know when you put it all together it's kind of interesting, interesting to think that napoleon was able to kind of pull off everything he was able to pull off as being some basically some lower uh, that too, I, I'd like to mention everything is originally the fault of the Italians. Let's, let's remember, <laughs> let's, let's remember where all the tactics originally came from. <laughs> can we, can we bring it even back further to the Macedonians? <laughs> sure. Why not? Absolutely. Let's just blame everybody who ever lived. Yes. I think we should do that. <laughs> all right. Um, well, thank you again, Bert, for coming on. Um, we will. Uh, this will probably be pu- publishing as a uh, a regular full episode. Oh, yeah. uh, let's see, the eleventh. 
Oh, cool. Uh, unless something silly happens. Oh, hey. Um, the New York opens from quarantine in its first phase on June 8th. So I'll be free by the time this is out. So everybody clap. Oh, awesome. Yeah. Well, I won't be free. That's not true. Yeah. I'll probably, well, probably be a month <laughs> after then where I'll finally <laughs> be able to go outside. But yeah. So, uh, yeah, originally the plan was to kind of do a, a double recording in one. Um, oh, you're going to release this I as its own? To... Okay. Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. I mean, I was going to release both of them as their own anyway. Okay. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because I, uh, I mean, I think we'd be hard pressed to link that tulip bubble to Napoleon. That's true. Although that would be an interesting exercise. Uh, everything connects. <laughs> everything connects to everything else in one way, at least. <laughs> Uh, fuck. Now I imagine Alex Jones just smashing a bunch of papers <laughs> on the desk. Yes. <laughs> Explaining how the Dutch actually caused Napoleon. Yes. Um, you know what? Uh, so at some point, the next episode I will probably do with Bert will be about that. Yeah. And then at some yet undetermined point in the future, we will also do an episode about the Russian, uh, Rev? Russian Revolution. Okay, nice. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and then maybe we should uh, have some mercy on the listeners and um, uh, like stop bothering them with this for maybe, maybe a month or so. <laughs> maybe. We'll see. <laughs> we'll see what the listeners want. Um, thank you very much for coming on, Bird, and please give me all of your plugs. Oh, yeah, sure. Uh, follow me at Car Campit on Twitter and uh, listen to my podcast, The Rollo and Slappy Show. <laughs> <laughs> very nice right i also have a few plugs um i have a patreon um because as you may have noticed um i sound like a poor um <laughs> <laughs> uh that is because i am one of those um so please give me money to sound less like a poor oh wait you're one uh, of those ew don't air this i don't want to be on this show <laughs> <laughs> uh, you're more like Napoleon than you think, Bert. <laughs> um, same height, same height too. <laughs> except for him, except for him, it was average. <laughs> <laughs> very much a similar character as well. Both <laughs> suffering very heavily from Napoleon syndrome. Yes, um, <laughs> yeah, every day of my life, indeed. <laughs> um. Yeah, so that's patreon.com slash bolsito poll. Um, there will probably be a link in my show notes. Um, then I have all of the shows of the Fred House to plug. Uh, the lineup has changed a little bit since the last time we talked. Uh, currently, it is uh, Burning Boots, Punker Libertarians, The Second Liberty, Anarchy, Property, The Gaslight Hour, Sean's Replanet, The Dose, Erased the State, No Real Libertarian, Trent Must Talk, Unchecked Liberty, Lauren Hart, Crossbond, Interaction Inc., and Two Fats and a Black. Um, I hope and, that and was. By the way, fast. I was finally no. given. I was finally given a Discord invite to the frat house, so uh, ah. <laughs> I shall. Will you? Shall take will you be joining it, or I, I, I will think about it. I have to be able to figure out whether or not my phone wants to run Discord because for some reason, despite the fact that I've factory reset my phone, it refuses to do so. That is very weird. Um, I, I, yes, but- it is. <laughs> Yes, it is, Bullshito. Yes, it is. <laughs> it's, uh, I, there's a joke about fat fingers in here. Um, <laughs> yeah, and you know what? Maybe that's it. <laughs> Maybe that is it. People don't know, but me and me and him have been texting, and it's not just me and him. It's me with everybody. I just can't spell anymore. I can't spell anymore. My fingers are just like, I don't know if it's because my fingers are too flat, because I don't have particularly fat fingers, although they are not long. They're quite short, actually. Um, well, but, maybe yeah, that's I just, it. Like, your fingers can't properly reach around your phone. Yeah, it's crazy because I I used to play the bass with these tiny little fellas. It's crazy. <laughs> wow. Well, um, so uh, I very hope much hope you will uh, be joining the frat house because you would be a very big get uh, for us. And of course, uh, we all love you very much. Um, oh, thank you. Yes. Uh, Let's see, did I have anything else? Um, I, fuck, man, I really think I have another plug to plug. 
why don't you put it in just, post? Uh, because I hate putting things in post. <laughs> <laughs> I have one plug. Everybody go go, go watch uh, the Epstein documentary on Netflix. It's pretty fucking good. Oh, shit. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's pretty fucking good. And, um, well, you know what? Everyone, go fuck yourself. Oh, you know um, what? Sorry. Let me do the, a serious one. This is a serious one. Oh, okay. Uh, ladies, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen who are listening, if you have not already donated to a bail fund, look into it and start donating ah, to yes. bail funds. I've been trying to, I mean, because of course, looking at Minneapolis, it brings up a lot of thoughts about, you know, community that's been suffering a whole lot. And one thing you can really do to help that community is to uh, put your money into bail funds. It helps people get, get people on bail. And as bail, the way bail works in America is the money basically gets recycled so long as people do the right thing. Uh, so, you know, see if you can do that. You can help a lot of people with it. So, real, real plug. All right. Awesome. Yeah. Do go, to, go donate to a, uh, a bail bond and then go for Head Start Campus at the Rollo Slappy Show. Rolling and polling. 